OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and Ion RT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led multi-award-winning oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 98. My name is Naman Joker Anderson and I'm joined by Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Joanne Collins, who talked about her role as an oncology pharmacist. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest, Dan Lumley, who will be discussing his role as a director of clinical operations at Amethyst. Hi Dan, how are you? Hi there, thank you Naman and thank you Joe for having me today. I'm delighted to be here. So Dan, can you tell us a bit about your current role and how you got there? Yes, of course. Um, as you touched on, I am the uh, Director for Clinical Operations for Amethyst Radiotherapy UK. Um, we specialise in the UK in stereotactic radiosurgery delivery. Um, my background is therapeutic radiography where I retrained in my mid-twenties at Sheffield Hallam University and wanted to pursue a career in, in helping people with cancer. Um, that was over a decade ago now, so a little while. Um, and yeah, I, when I graduated, I went into working in the NHS. Um, my, my, you know, probably quite corny to say it, but I wanted to go and do something where at the end of the day I felt I made a bit of a difference. Prior to this, I worked in finance, in banking, um, and what I learned from that was I liked the interaction with the customers, but I didn't particularly like the idea of what you know finance meant for me. So um, after a bit of soul searching, I decided going into the NHS, looking to do something where you felt you could do something good for people, was where I wanted to be. Um, yes, so several years working in the NHS um, before transitioning into private healthcare to provide stereotactic radiosurgery services or gamma knife as some people might know it to, uh, to patients who get brain tumours. And here I am now, probably uh, 10 years since I started that journey, I've moved up to director, clinical director. Um, and my overall scope is to deliver, for me, the best clinical service I can, the best patient care I can, um, and keep us, you know, ticking along and helping people as often as we can and promoting the services as best as possible so more people know that, the, that this modality is out there and available to them. So, Dan, what is Amethyst and what types of patients do you treat? <clears throat> 
of course. Um, so first of all, um, it isn't just an oncology service. We treat benign lesions as well. Everything that we do treat, however, is situated in the brain from the C2 vertebrae upwards. We need to be able to immobilize our patient with a head frame. Um, that allows us to get a certain level of accuracy just, that just can't be achieved with many other treatment options. Um, and what we use is radiation sources, cobalt-60 radiation sources to treat lesions, small lesions, big lesions, you know, things in, in eloquent areas that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get to through surgery or through, you know, you might not want to necessarily try to, to get to with LINAC-based stereotactic services um, to, to deliver a highly focused, you know, um, with a, a low drop-off sort of range of treatments. Did you say that Joe was one of your lecturers? back in the day I did yeah a little while back I had the pleasure of Joe teaching me um, I'm sure you get many people on here that are in the same boat um, it's as we all know it's quite a small community and I think the people that go on and go far are the people that really have their heart in the, the treatment um, they're not always fun days as we know um, and I think you know going out and doing something like this um, putting yourself through university, putting yourself through the significant amount of clinical work you have to do alongside your academic work, um, tells you everything about the people that graduate. Do you miss the clinical work? I still do the clinical work. Oh, okay. I miss it that much that I still do bits, even as a director. Yeah, I'm so I'm still professionally registered. Um, I'm also the CQC registered manager for the Sheffield Centre. Um, and I also work at the Queen's Square Radio Surgery Centre in London, uh, the Thornbury Radio Centre, Radio Surgery Centre in Sheffield, and occasionally, just to keep my competencies up, I like to get involved with the patients. So, Dan, from a patient's perspective, what could they anticipate when they go for stereotactic radio surgery that's maybe different to external radiotherapy using a linear accelerator because it is it is quite different isn't it even just aesthetically looking yeah so um, in terms of if you were just purely comparing the machines it's a very sleek space age looking machine it's got none of the kind of clunky gantries you tend to get with linux so um it looks very modern very sci-fi um perhaps a little less intimidating than some of the linux services that you see um but I think probably the thing that sets it apart as much as anything is, generally speaking, when a patient comes to us, it's just for one treatment day. So we have the patient come and be admitted to the service around 7am um, and they stay with us throughout while we deliver the treatment. We keep them for a little while after to make sure they're feeling well and we discharge them home. So it's a day case service um, and generally speaking, in comparison to linear accelerator services and modalities, um, there's none of this come back, you know, Monday to Friday, five days a week, three, five weeks in a row. Um, they can come to us, give us their day and we can send them home, you know, you know, confident in what we've delivered and pass them back to their oncologists or, you know, their other care professionals to, to carry on their care. How long can a session take? So I presume for different aspects of the brain, it might be slightly longer or quicker. Yeah, it's, um, it's a tricky one to answer because we use cobalt sources and they have a half-life 
four and a half years approximately. So depending on the age of the machine, depends how long a treatment might take to deliver. Brand new machine with a hot source, it's obviously going to be a lot quicker delivery than a machine that's sort of five years old. Um, again, there are a lot of other factors in there in terms of treatment delivery. Um, how many lesions are we treating? How big are they? Are they close to organs at risk? Um, so it's I couldn't put a finger on it and tell you a time. There's no standard, um, but it often depends on what we see at a, a planning sort of stage when we do an MRI scan on the treatment day that allows us to get a good visual of what's going on inside. So. If a, for example, if a patient came to us um, and they were referred off an MRI scan from four weeks ago with brain mets and we expected to see four mets and we see six or eight or ten on a day, then obviously that has a bearing on how the treatment might shape up as well. So um, I'd love to give you a, a figure, but um, it depends on what we see when we're doing the day-to-day -day stuff. The one thing I would say to any patients listening is it is definitely not as quick as external beam radiotherapy. So a lot of patients who come for radiotherapy using a linear accelerator, it's typically 10 to 15 minutes worth of treatment time. It's definitely longer, isn't it, Dan, when they come for stereotactic radiosurgery? Yes, I mean, we treat from some of the shorter treatments have been 15, 16 minutes. But some of the longer ones, we could be going to four or five hours at a time. Um, the beauty of the machine, it, it effectively has a pause button. So if your treatment is four hours, for example, and you need a comfort break or you need something to eat or you need to just stretch, we can hit that pause button. It allows the patient to take a break and we can take them right back to where the treatment was before without any additional dose in there as well. So that is one of the good things about it. Um, and also unlike your standard sort of LINAC services, because we immobilize the head with a, a frame or a mask, um, from the shoulders down, should the patient need to wriggle, shuffle to keep comfortable if they cough or sneeze, there's no risk of our target changing position and us missing. So whilst on one hand you have this incredibly long treatment, sometimes um, you do have the the assurance that should you, you know, move that we're gonna deliver exactly what we tell you we're going to deliver to the area that we have marked out. Just for any patients listening, Dan, I know, I'm, I'm hoping I know the answer to this, but I'm gonna ask you a silly question. You talked about half-life and why things take longer. Just wondering from a patient angle, why why would you not why would you use cobalt and not something else where there isn't a radiation source, for example? Sure, I understand. Um, yeah, in layman's terms, using a cobalt source allows us to collimate and shape the beam to where we want it to be. So unlike linear accelerators where you get a certain um, scatter, I guess, um, what we're able to do is use collimators to shape um, to shape the delivery of the beam. Um, we can you know we can shape to four, eight, or sixteen mils. What I should have probably said as well early doors is there's 192 radiation sources in there and we're able to turn each and every one of them on and off or give them a different collimator size which allows us to create hundreds of thousands of shapes. That's how we get our accuracy um, and it's just not achievable without using natural radiation source to deliver that kind of you know, focused beam precision. I also know some people will be like, what's a half-life? What are you talking about? So can you give us a little bit of information about kind of the the half-life and why that affects specifically treatment times? Dan, Joe's taking you back to uni. She's seeing if you if you remember anything from back in the day. 
<laughs> yeah, I remember someone saying this to me once. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the half life, uh, you know, as basic as it sounds, is how long it takes for the 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 intensity for what it's worth of the source to decay to half of the radiation we expected to give out. Different radiation sources are all measured in terms of half-life. Some of them can be incredibly long in terms of thousands and tens of thousands of years. Some can be incredibly short in terms of weeks and days. Cobalt-60 give us, gives us the perfect half-life with the perfect type of radiation to be able to make the machine usable, to be able to make it um, a good functioning form of, um, of radiation delivery that we can shape and, um, and can shield from as well, so yeah. Dan, I've got a hot potato or a controversial question. We like to do this on Rad Chat. Um, so thinking about the environment, the future, climate change, do you think it's sustainable to keep using a radioactive source or should we be looking for something different? Depends how short or long term you want to think. Um, for me personally, for something that I have seen delivered thousands of times to thousands of metastatic cancer patients, the quality of life it's given, the prolonged life with family members. Um, it's not really sort of a comparison you can make, you know, the the green credentials versus, you know, quality of life. It's, it's a hot potato, as you say. Um, short term, like who, who wouldn't like to be in a position where you could do this and it'd be totally green or carbon neutral or without sourcing radiation sources? It'd be perfect. So let's work towards that. So Dan, um, one of the things that we often hear from patients about on RadChat is that their consultant has advocated that they have whole brain radiotherapy delivered with a linear accelerator. And um, obviously one of the things that they will contact us about having listened to Chris Lenga talk about stereotactic radiosurgery is the fact that that exists and is it potentially something that patients can have um what is the difference what why aren't patients being offered stereotactic radiosurgery you know what's the eligibility criteria i think if you've interviewed chris you'll know a lot of her pathway was you know, identified by herself through looking on the internet, through reading around, through educating herself. Um, I think for me, having been in the profession for quite a few years, um, the disappointing thing is it's not a modality that's so well promoted and recognised that all oncologists are aware of it, or at least see that as their preferred method of uh, managing patients through their pathway and offering it alongside, you know, whether it's chemotherapy, brachytherapy services, linear, linear accelerator services, um, there is room for all of them. I think Chris will probably tell you that there's a bit of a postcode lottery f for her. She had to find the nearest center and she's based, you know, in the southern part of the country and she pushed hard for that. It wasn't something when she was pushing on her pathway that um, her doctors knew about. So, you know, education's a massive thing, a massive part of that. Why isn't it offered? I can only assume potentially um, people either are unaware or it's not their preferred approach to it for whatever clinical reasons they might have. Certainly from my perspective, um, 
again, I've seen enough treatments of people with metastatic disease that I'm a big advocate for this as a, as a treatment, hence being with you guys today to give the opportunity to, to promote you know, the treatment itself. I'm not here with my work hat on, I'm here with my, I'm passionate about this hat on. Um, the eligibility criteria um, have changed significantly over the years. When I first started doing this a decade ago, one of the criteria that got you know prevented you from access to it was having three lesions. If you had more than three lesions, it wasn't a treatment modality you could be referred for. Now we can treat dozens in one go. And if there's exponential growth from the original referral to now, we can see that patient several times. Chris Halenga is the perfect example of somebody who alongside her other treatment modalities that are working for her, alongside control of the primary disease, has had access to and had stereotactic treatment delivered time and time again. So um, that itself is its biggest selling point, its unique point for me. Um, I think anybody who is a therapy radiographer who has seen whole brain radiotherapy knows whilst, I'm sorry, this is my personal opinion, whilst there's a role for it, um, it's it's a very final option in some respects um, and not something that I've seen work so well for people in my experiences. I think just to echo that, that I've had patients probably my age and younger who just haven't been offered stereotactic within the NHS just for, you know, for various different reasons or clinician preference, whatever it is, but lots of them have then gone on to do their own research and say, well, actually, I could have stereotactic this is the referral and then they have had to champion themselves do you think that maybe we should be working harder to stop patients having to look up their own treatment pathways and almost advocate for themselves absolutely um i think when you have anything that you can help with the modalities whether it's holistically why should you as the person diagnosed find that you have to on top of all the other stresses and problems and coming to terms with things, you have to go out and do your own research. Then why should you have to battle with your, your primary carer to say, can I be considered for this? Uh, you know, it's, stereotactic should be visibly available more. It should be an easy thing to find. It's, I mean, it's not an easy thing to find just by Googling stereotactic radio surgery. It takes you down a lot of options. So if you don't know where to start, how, how easy is it to put that first sentence into a, a, a computer and find your, your first footstep to moving forward? It should be a consideration through all oncology pathways, in my personal opinion. Um, and then it is the jobs of the MDTs, the multidisciplinary teams, to sit there and consider those patients that meet certain criteria as to whether it's an option for them. And then the power should go back to the patient. This is an option for you. It means this you know, one long day or, you know, uh, you know, some people are, you know, slightly put off by the, what we call the framing technique. So if you can't have a mask made to immobilize you, we use um, what we call a gamma frame or a vantage frame. And that allows us to um, guarantee the accuracy really. Um, it requires four local anesthetic injections, two in the front of the forehead, two in the back. It's the same sort of thing you get when you go to a dentist and you're having a filling and they gave you a little injection. It's that initial sting, wait for the area to go numb, top up the anaesthetic and fit the frame. Um, but actually for 10 minutes of discomfort, we can give you accuracy of you know less, less than a mil, 
you know, 0.5 of a millimeter or, or even more. So we could do that or we can do whole brain without any consideration. Um, and we're gonna take all that healthy tissue that surrounds tumors and we're gonna cause some damage in the process of trying to control the disease. Um, so yeah, I mean, on that alone is my reasons for why it should be readily available, readily taught about, readily accessible, whether that be, you know, patients having to, you know, find the services or oncologists being more aware of them. Dan, how many radiosurgery centres are there in the country? I know there's about 75 radiotherapy departments. Do you know off the top of your head how many radiosurgery centres there are? Yeah, there's seven stereotactic services. So I'm not talking about linear accelerator stereotactic treatments, just pure gamma knife stereotactic machines. There's two in Sheffield, one in Leeds, one in Bristol, and the rest are based in London. So it's not geographically, it's not evenly spread through the country. However, we probably, stereotactic probably covers enough of the country that you can get access to um, and really like I said, as a day case treatment, more often than not, people, I, I found from experience, will travel from all over to come to us just to give us that day. And for like the referral pathway, just so I understand properly, as an NHS patient, if I went to my oncologist, I had a brain tumour, and they said, yes, we can give you stereotactic, would they just refer directly to your service? There's plenty of services they can refer to, so it depends if they refer geographically or if they refer to a particular consultant they work alongside. Um, certainly within the, the area I work in, outside of the NHS now, you can refer directly in, you can refer yourself in. Um, we would just need to gather certain information to consider um, patients' sort of uh, medical history. So we'd need a referral letter from a GP or an oncologist or any of your other care providers that you're under. Um, and then we'd need to acquire any imaging that shows us the, the lesions in the head. And if it was metastatic, um, they would have to be under sort of a month. So we, we've got a relatively good idea of what the extent of the disease is. Um, again, that's something you as a patient could say, am I suitable for? And if so, please, could you refer me into and you can direct them or you could direct them into any of the trusts that offer if you're an NHS patient and certainly as a private patient there are companies out there that offer that services where you can refer in and it goes through the same pathway just in an expedited manner. In terms of side effects Dan what what do you typically say to patients when they go for stereotactic radiosurgery what can they expect after treatment? Yeah, um, the way I've always done it is short term and long term I think it's easier to, for people to understand um, when we talk about short term, because of the sites we've been at where we've affixed the frame with the local anaesthetic, there's a risk, a risk of infection, and that would be standard infection practice. Does it become red, sore, itchy, weepy? If so, and you think it might be infected, you don't need to come to us. Go see your GP, let them have a look, let them assess if you need antibiotics. Um, if you know we've had a frame on for four or five hours, um, the pressure that you have from having that frame quite tight on the head can give you a bit of a tension headache for 24 to 48 hours. So we'd always recommend taking uh, paracetamol or ibuprofen or whatever the pain relief is that person might be on just to keep that sort of that niggly headache at bay. But those side effects tend to wane within 24 to 48 hours. Um, in terms of any other side effects, the more long-term um, 
we don't tend to see hair loss unless the lesion is very superficial within the skull. So if it's based very much close to the edge of the skull, we might get small areas where the hair follicles you know, lose their hair, but that tends to grow back again. We're not talking about big, large areas where people have got chunks of hair missing. We're talking about small, tiny little areas where um, the radiation doses damage the hair follicles and they grow back again. Um, other than that, assuming you're under the care of an oncologist, whether you need steroids or other other medicines to, to help you manage with your conditions, you shouldn't really get any from stereotactic. If the area is particularly co close to the motor strip, maybe you might be at increased risk of fitting for a short while. Um, often we work alongside oncologists and, and to increase doses and things to make sure that doesn't happen. But generally speaking, patient, like I said, it's a day case service, patients walk in, patients walk out, and the only thing that they've really got to show for it is a couple of little marks on the front of the forehead where they look a little bit like insect bites for a couple of days. I do, um, having kind of spent time in uh, stereotactic radiosurgery, the one thing I've always absolutely loved about it is the fact that you get to spend the entire day with your patients and you build such a rapport like it sounds silly doesn't it because you maybe only see them one day um but because it's quite a stressful experience they're in hospital for long periods of time they're going through lots of procedures um to almost kind of verify everything before they even get to that treatment stage i'd say that has to be like a therapeutic radiographer's dream doesn't it yeah absolutely i think when i was considering uh, therapeutic radiographer as a, as a profession I was sold on the idea that I get to see you know 20 patients a day and spend 10 minutes with them and get to know them. and it's great over the course of a, you know a week when you get to know somebody you catch up with them over the week how was your weekend you said you were going to go to your daughter's wedding how was that? and you get all those lovely bits um, and then with stereotactic you kind of get that bit stripped away in some respects you don't get that continuation of seeing the patient however you get to spend 7 a.m. till 5 p.m. potentially with somebody, helping them, understanding them, giving them a, a face to you know talk to. Um, on, you know, just like you tend to find with radiotherapy, um, patients are often moved through the services quite quickly. So there's a lot to come to terms with in a very short space of time, particularly if you're on an oncology pathway, and the timescales that are there to to move through from you know from initial diagnosis to treatment. Again, like radiotherapy, standard radiotherapy, is often the first time the patient gets to sit down and, and take it all in and process it. And it's often, it, it's in a non-clinical environment most of the time because it's a day case service. We have you know nice waiting areas. We try and make sure everything's very holistic in its thinking and its processes. We don't put people in a clinical environment unless we really have to. Um, and really we get to know the patients, we get to know them really well. Um, and you know, on some occasions we see them again because they might come back for follow-up treatments, um, and we get to continue that level of care. On it's really, it's really quite rewarding. Still, you get a good standard of biscuit um, in stereotactic radio surgery. <laughs> Have to absolutely. <laughs> I also love the fact that actually you work within a very close multidisciplinary team, which obviously everyone does within radiotherapy. But you have key professionals, don't you, who you get to know on a daily basis. Can you talk us through kind of the MDT that you work within um, much more within stereotactic radiosurgery? Yeah, of course. Um, just certainly from my experience, the MDT that we're involved in for considering cases for stereotactic treatment is one of the largest 
that I've ever seen or been involved in um, and genuinely requires everybody to sort of chip in and give us their opinions. So it's not just a, a tick box exercise. Um, an MDT for consideration for METS would have um, a neurosurgeon, a neuroradiologist, a medical physicist, um, potentially a, a therapy radiographer would be there as well. Um, yeah, and the and the whole process is an, an open forum where we're discussing, you know, eloquent targets, um, organs at risk, um, consideration for performance status, how well the patient is, how you know how is this the best thing for this particular patient based on the information we know. Um, and it's what I consider to be quite a lively debate. Dan, can I ask about kind of follow-up from having had treatment? What is the follow-up process? So is it scans? You know, what, what happens afterwards? Sure. Um, so just purely sticking to the metastatic side of things and keeping away from the benign things because the follow-up processes are different. Um, met once we've treated a patient with metastatic disease, um, we have a treatment plan and a discharge letter that will go back to the referring oncologist. So working under the assumption that the patient is an oncology pathway and that they have scheduled uh, meetings for chemotherapy or linear accelerator or immunotherapy or any one of these gambits of um, modality options. Now, um, basically once we're done with the treatment, we let them get on with their day and we feed back into the pathway that they've come off. Recommendations from us are often to be reviewed in three months for a follow-up MRI scan. That's just to see A, how they're responding to the treatment, how the lesions are responding to the treatment, but B, also to see if there's more growth there as well. So well, I have to respect the fact that once they go back into the oncology pathway, they're actually at the mercy of the professionals there and there could be other you know, intervening factors that they might need to, to undertake, whether it's a debulk, whether it's other treatment options, Often chemotherapy has to be paused to allow stereotactic to be delivered. So again, it goes back, feeds back into the, the MDT approach where you have these different professions all coming in with their specialities, all doing the best they can for the patient and just trying to work it all together in a way that, you know, is, you know, the most expedited and accurate treatment you can deliver. How do you look after yourself if you're dealing with patients with metastatic disease where this might not work? You have to remember that you're doing this for all the good reasons. So you can't take it home with you. That's what I've learned over time. You can't let it diminish your desire to help. Um, and you have to recognize that you know, you're, you're always gonna have these days you're always going to have difficult times when perhaps the patient came to you with a referral that you thought you could treat and perhaps the disease has become quite extensive between their original scanning coming to you and you cannot. Um, the reality is it's always harder for the patient than it is for us. So that's just first in your thoughts. How can you help them? How can you begin to direct them onto the correct pathway now they've had some difficult news they weren't expecting um, and you just try and do your best. What are the biggest challenges you face since coming into this sort of role? So obviously going from being a treatment radiographer for example and then working your way into this. It was a bugbear for me when I was a treatment radiographer 
like full time that we couldn't get access to these kind of services. So I dedicate an awful lot of my time now in trying to promote us, trying to reach the consultants, um, to talk to the consultants and identify where they find holdups in their pathway for both benign and malignant things. Um, and, and trying to improve them. So the biggest challenges are really COVID is had a factor. We've seen growth in the number of metastatic referrals. We've seen over time changes in referral patterns, people recognizing that actually stereotactic services are a great modality option alongside the other ones. So we're not, we're not trying to take anything away. We're trying to open something up. I think that's the main thing and trying to get that across to people is, has been a challenge. Um, but actually, once that patient is received back by them and they can continue on their care, and their quality of life is not diminished, quite often that results in a referral back to us at a later point. So, you know, systemic disease is still controlled, primary disease is still looking good. We sent them for stereotactic radiosurgery eight months ago. A couple more little metastatic lesions have popped up. You know, let's, let's see if we can treat them again. So they come to us in an MDT format and we discuss them purely on the merit of that again. So. Um, it's just the great thing that we could see somebody three, four, five times and treat them over multiple years and, you know, really sort of see them reap the benefits of what we've done. So, um, the challenges are keep, you know, promoting those pathways, uh, making them accessible to people, um, stopping patients having to do all their own research and then making sure those pathways work for the consultants that, they know how they were, that they know how to refer, and that they know how they will get their patient back to continue on the care. Dan, what are the waiting times like at Amethyst? I know you may not necessarily know for the NHS, but you know, if you were to self-refer to Amethyst, does it take long for you to be able to access treatment at the moment? Um, so yeah, I can't, as you said, comment on the NHS waiting lists, but in terms of referring into our company, um, you, you could be referred in and treated within a week to two weeks tops. Yeah, speedy process. Um, once we know, you know where we can obtain the patient's previous imaging, we can acquire a referral letter and we can put all that information together for an MDT to consider the patient for suitability then all we've got to do is liaise with the patient to find out what works for them. And I'm just thinking I have probably about 10 newly qualified therapeutic radiographers, well, fingers crossed due in July, um, and they are really keen to work in stereotactic radiosurgery. What advice would you give someone who is passionate about wanting to work in that sector? Come and work with me. <laughs> um, I think, right, standard radiotherapy gave me an incredibly good background. I will never take away from that. And whilst I think it's incredibly admirable that anybody would want to come and work in stereotactic, I think a grounding in all things radiotherapy is incredibly useful. It helps to transition easier. Um, and I think from a professional perspective, you've spent years training to learn how to treat a multitude of things. Do you ask yourself, are you ready to subspecialize? If the answer is yes, then I firmly believe stereotactic will always be something that you will get a, 
you know, get a buzz out of helping with, that you will see clinically that it helps. You will see the difference between what you've experienced as a student, um, seeing people come in for whole brain radiotherapy and occasionally the deterioration over the time that they're with you versus somebody who can walk in for a day case procedure, have something that is delivered sub-millimeter accuracy and go home to the family at the end of the night with no significant side effects created by the treatment. So it is uh, an incredibly rewarding, challenging treatment, uh, treatment to get into. Um, but, you know, I think for any student, I think any kind of rotation, any kind of time spent there is really well spent just to see what other modalities are out there that aren't perhaps promoted um, as, as widely as stereotactic radiosurgery. So Dan, we always like to end our episodes with top tips. You've given us some great top tips so far, but have you got anything else to leave our listeners with? I have my own mantra, I guess you could call it. Um, doesn't relate to amethyst, doesn't relate to stereotactic in particular, but it's when you have those bad days and you know your patient isn't well or didn't attend because they've gone downhill quickly, or you, know, you just see a general decline with them. Um, and as what I've always said to myself when I finish work, when I go home, and I, so you've got to remember that you've always tried to do good. No matter how your day went, you tried to deliver something good to somebody who needed it. And that's the, the comfort I take whenever it's never been quite a good day. So, um, yeah, and I'll, I'll keep echoing that. Oh, thank you so much. And I think your passion for improving access to a very important and needed treatment for some of our patients it's, it's definitely come through, so thank you very much for coming on. No, thank you. Thank you both for having me and giving me the opportunity to speak. Uh, yeah, thank you for everyone for listening to Radchat. Your hosts today have been Norman Jokanson and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted, along with the links to resources and literature we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Lizzie Streeter, who will be discussing her role as the National LGBT Health Programme Manager for NHS England. Thank you for listening and take care.